Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the Tudors in love, the Marquis de Lafayette and how he became the hero of two worlds, the Anglo Irish Agreement and its legacy. Irish icons debated at the Little Museum of Dublin and to end the show we'll find out what happened in Antrim during the revolutionary years 1912 to 1923. Now last week we brought you the life legend and legacy of Fionn McCool and how his legend developed across the centuries and if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the Tudors in love. The dramas of courtly love have captivated centuries of readers and dreamers, yet too often they're dismissed as something existing only in books and song. Those old legends of King Arthur and chivalric fantasy. Not so, and a new book explores how courtly love made and marred the Tudor dynasty. Uh, The book is called The Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. It's published in hardback by One World Publications. The author is Sarah Gristwood. And Sarah, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. So let's talk, first of all, about the Tudors. Why are the Mm. Tudors so popular and continue to be so popular? I know they do, don't they? And somehow one just can't get away from it. I think it's a combination of factors. I think it's partly, partly, of course, the sheer dramas of the, of the stories, partly the fact that women are at the centre of so many of those stories. So, you know, that allows a whole lot of us to relate to them in a way that perhaps we wouldn't to some of the medieval eras, when it all seems to be about kings and battles you know, boys and toys. Um, and there isn't quite that sense of of emotion and, you know, intimacy. But I think that intimacy thing is really the key because the Tudors are, all, are the first modern, the first, you know, British or English-speaking dynasty for whom we have the kind of records that let us explore their feelings really i mean earlier i've written about the i've written several books about the tudors but one about the women behind the wars of the roses and that was such a different kettle of fish i mean those women went through dramas heaven knows people like margaret beaufort cecily neville but we really don't have any kind of documentary evidence to show what they felt about them. And so I think that's pretty important. We can relate to the Tudors in a way that we can't most earlier, the people of most earlier periods. And talk to me about this courtly code, because mm. it, it, it is fascinating the way when, say, for example, Henry VIII uh, was writing to, to Anne Boleyn, yes. he was describing himself as her humble servant, despite yes. him being the king. So it, it was interesting, these kind of rituals and uh, exactly. uh, roles that they played during these, these love affairs. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the picture, the kind of core picture from courtly love is of a lover, a knight, really kneeling in homage before a lady. And that picture, it kicked off, if you like, in, in the 12th century. And it's come right through to the Victorian era and on to us today. I mean, I'm sure we can all think of, you know, a hundred kind of 
slightly chocolate boxy Victorian pictures of, you know, a beautiful woman with hair flowing down her shoulders and a humble knight and all the rest of it. But that is the core image. And as I say, it kicked off in Provence in the late 12th century, you know, the songs of the troubadours even before that. And it was still there when the Tudors came to the throne. Indeed, Thomas Maller is Mort Duffer, the, the death of King Arthur, with everything about Lancelot and Guinevere and all that courtly creed, was published in English in England in the very same year that the Battle of Bosworth brought Henry VII to the throne. And it definitely seems to have influenced how women were perceived and how they were treated, that it was very much uh, women were there to be pursued, to be lavished mm. with affection, to have these letters and uh, uh, items of, of devotion given to them, rather than having perhaps agency themselves. Yes, I think, I think you're right, and I think that's key. Um, because courtly love was a creed that seemed to put the woman on top, on a pedestal, if you like. You know, the, the, the lover, the humble lover was supposed to do everything to please her. Trouble is, there's not much you can do on a pedestal except fall off it. You know, and really, when you came right down to it, as you say, courtly love was all about pursuit. It was about the feelings of the knight, the male lover, um, really more than it was about the woman as an individual. So I think it was a very seductive creed for women. Anne Boleyn herself may have been seduced by it to some degree, as well as perhaps using it to seduce Henry. Um, but in the end, perhaps she got caught in its trap. Yes, because in the end, uh, the, the the man involved was prepared to to get rid of any loose ends, uh, mm. and and was that because under the code, if you would have to marry again, like what was the did the how well, did the code work against Anne? Well, I mean the courtly love because courtly love was, and I, I should sort of stress, and we're just saying glibly courtly love, but this was something that really dominated hundreds of years of, of European literature. You know, every writer from, oh, Dante, Petrarch, Chaucer, Christine de Pizan wrote about it, you know, either, either used it or criticized it. It really did, you know, underpin the thinking, the, the imaginations of the day. But the strange thing about courtly love is that it was never a marital, married love. Indeed, back in the 12th century, one writer who actually laid down, you know, laid down the rules, wrote a book laying down the rules for courtly love, asked whether true love within marriage was even possible. And it was decided that no, it was not, because true love was a matter of free choice and marriage was a matter of family arrangement. So. The courtly love code got absolutely tied to the Arthurian stories, to Lancelot and Guinevere. And when you think of it, that's pretty odd to be held up as an ideal, because what we've got is King Arthur's wife having it off with King Arthur's best friend. I mean, how strange is it that those adulterous lovers 
should still be admired for their purity. So really, it was all very well while Henry was still married, you know, to the increasingly less glamorous Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn was the the glamorous courtly mistress. But once Anne in turn became the wife, different things were expected of her. Very good. Well, the book is called The Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. The book is published in hardback by One World Publications. The author is Sarah Gristwood. And Sarah, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Few in history can match the revolutionary career of the Marquis de Lafayette. Over 50 incredible years at the heart of the Age of Revolution, he fought courageously on both sides of the Atlantic. He was a soldier, statesman, idealist, philanthropist and abolitionist. And his story has been told in a brilliant new book, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. It's published in hardback by Public Affairs. The author is Mike Duncan. And Mike, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about one of those uh, descriptions of him, idealist. There really is this strong sense of idealism running through his life and his career, and it takes him to America and the American Revolution, uh, in France during the French Revolution, and it really is something that's quite consistent throughout uh, all of these decades. Yeah, I think it's something that Lafayette uh, picks up at a very young age, uh, if it was not something that he was simply born with innately. Uh, but he was, you know, he's a French nobleman who was born in the mid-18th century, and this is sort of at the heyday of the French Enlightenment and uh, a sort of idealistic notions of the power of progress uh, start to seep into the educated classes. And Lafayette really wholeheartedly embraces this idea that whatever's going on in the world, whether it's in, in science or in society or in economics or in politics, uh, that things can be improved, things can be made better. If there's suffering in the world, it can be alleviated. Um, if there are injustices in the world, they, they can be stopped. And so he really sets, embarks on his life at a very young age, just uh, you know, at the age of 19, he's entering the world stage. And as you say, for the next 50 years, uh, we find him consistently fighting and trying to make the world that he lives in better for the people who live in it. Talk to me about his involvement in the American Revolution, because those who are familiar with the musical Hamilton will be will will have seen the character of Lafayette. Uh, talk to me about the role he played, and also how he became internationally famous because of that role. Yeah, well, there were significantly fewer rap battles in in the real American Revolution than there were like in the Hamilton musical. Um, but he was there, and he did show up, and he was. He was an important part of the American Continental Army and then generally brokering the relationship between France and what is about to become the United States. Because all of the American leaders, all of these like Anglo-Protestant farmers who have gone into revolt against uh, their colonial, you know, the colonial leaders back in in London, knew that they were going to have to get these French Catholics on their side in order to win the war. They needed French money, they needed French arms, they needed French, uh, they needed French guns and a navy. And so Lafayette winds up being at the epicenter of forging an alliance between the United States and France to take on the British. Um, but Lafayette comes over in the first place mostly because he is a 19-year-old 
who is very unhappy at home. He's, he's not uh, having a particularly happy home life. And he more or less runs away from home to go have a grand adventure because he's a, you know, he's a 19 year old kid who wants to have a grand adventure. But at the same time, like we just said, he is driven by these sort of larger idealistic notions uh, that, that the world ought to be governed by ideas like liberty and equality, as opposed to like tyranny and subjugation and oppression. So he merges these two things in his head when he crosses the Atlantic. On the one hand, he's a young, ambitious man who wants to have a grand adventure. And on the other hand, he wants to make an idealistic mark on the world. And then he plays a significant role uh, back home in France during the French Revolution. But it, it's a difficult period for him and he spends five years in the dungeons. So he has his ups and downs with this uh, fight for idealism and for what he believes is right. Yeah, Lafayette's life is not one of uninterrupted success. Um, it, it was a life of uninterrupted success until he got to about age 30. Because, you know, he was uh, eminently successful in the American Revolution. He becomes, this is when he becomes the hero of two worlds. Uh, when he returns to France, he's one of the most sort of popular and famous people in all of France. Like, sort of everybody at least knows the name Lafayette. Um, and he becomes a part of the group of liberal nobles and sort of reformers who would like to take the Kingdom of France as it existed at that moment, uh, which is this absolutist regime that was financially broken, economically dysfunctional, politically dysfunctional, and reform it and make it something more enlightened, make it a constitutional monarchy, have rights for citizens, um, you know, allow people to participate in the crafting of their own laws. This is what Lafayette thinks the French Revolution is going to be about. And in 1789, this is largely what the French Revolution is about. But of course, as anybody with even a passing understanding of the French Revolution knows, one of the things that gets unleashed by the French Revolution is these forces of increasing radicalization, so that as we move through 1790, 1791, 1792, Lafayette is now no longer considered this sort of leading-edge liberal radical reformer. He is now considered by people like Robespierre, Danton, Desmoulins, Marat, as a counter-revolutionary conservative who is trying to stop the, uh, the arrival of this kind of utopian republic that they had in their heads. And Lafayette runs afoul of them and winds up, you know, quite literally skipping town in the dead of night in uh, August of 1792, one step ahead of an arrest warrant that had he, you know, had he been arrested by uh, the forces that had taken power in Paris, they almost certainly would have beheaded him. Yeah, no, it is a, a, an extraordinary career. Talk to me about his abolitionism, another of the description, because that's an aspect of his career that probably hasn't received much attention at all. Yeah, it, his abolitionism, you know, springs out of that idealistic, uh, those idealistic notions that he had about things. And, um, you know, one of the things about Lafayette is that for all the good that he did in the world, he was a bright guy, uh, but he was not any kind of cowering genius. Um, you know, he, he was surrounded by people like Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton, or you come back over into France and he's with, you know, the Marquis Condorcet, these people who have really towering intellects. And Lafayette never really w was operating at that level. So when he heard about a concept like liberty and he heard about a concept like equality, he just thought that that meant people should be free and everybody was equal. He didn't have sort of a sophisticated ability to compartmentalize these things the way that somebody like Thomas Jefferson did. 
where Jefferson is able to write the Declaration of Independence on the one hand, while being one of the largest slave owners uh, in the United States at the time. So Lafayette comes to the United States, believes that he's fighting for liberty, believes that he's fighting for equality, and then is looking over at his friends, Washington, Madison, Jefferson, who owned slaves, and he's thinking to himself, well, this is not compatible with the ideals that we are saying that we're fighting for. Like, liberty and slavery are literally contradictions. So from, uh, from about 1783, which is just after the American War of Independence, he's still quite a young man, he starts writing letters encouraging his friends to free their slaves. He becomes associated with the nascent abolitionist movement. This is really when sort of white European society gets going on its own abolitionist movement. He becomes uh, friends and partners with like William Wilberforce and, and, uh, and Thomas Clarkson, who are going to lead the abolitionist charge in Britain. And he sets himself up in France as one of the leading voices of abolitionism, like in France and in continental Europe, which he then he sticks with this for the whole rest of his life. And he dies in 1834, you know, right on the verge of some major sea changes in actually the abolition of slavery, like in the British Empire. Um, you know, the Americans, he keeps thinking the Americans are going to get their act together because he always assumes that the Americans are this liberty-loving people who will eventually overcome uh, their addiction to slavery. But they, they obviously don't until a massive civil war is the only thing that actually ends slavery in the New World. But that's 30 years past Lafayette's death. Well, my congratulations on bringing the Marquis of Lafayette to life and his remarkable story. The book is called Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution, published in hardback by Public Affairs. The author, Mike Duncan. And Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Anglo-Irish Agreement, signed by Gareth Fitzgerald and Margaret Thatcher on the 15th of November 1985, was unique in providing a treaty-based arrangement for the government of a territory disputed by two states. And you get an extraordinary insight into the negotiations that led to that agreement and into what it involved. In a new memoir that has just been published, it's called The Making of the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, a memoir by David Goodall, uh, published in paperback by the National University of Ireland. The editor is Frank Sheridan. And Frank, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Well, congratulations on the book because it brings together not only that memoir by David Goodall, but also insights from various people involved, including Michael Lillis, who was, uh, in a way, David Goodall's opposite number on the Irish negotiating team. There's a forward by Morris Manning, who's the Chancellor of the National University of Ireland. There's a piece by Stephen Collins, uh, Charles Pole, who was uh, Margaret Thatcher's private secretary during the negotiations and others, so that you are getting these primary source insights into uh, what led to that agreement in 1985? Yes, that's true. Basically, there was a bit of a challenge when we got our hands on the memoir because it is relatively short. It was 984 pages and we were figuring there isn't enough in this for a book. And the idea emerged that, you know, perhaps what we can try to do is to capture in one volume uh, things that will set the context both in Britain and in Ireland uh, along with the memoir, and then something from the Irish side of the negotiation by Michael Lillis. And, uh, you know, when we put the whole thing together, to our surprise, it did come together fairly well. And I think it does afford people who want to study the period um, a fair breadth of knowledge. 
um, and of information in terms of what were the dynamics, the issues, the challenges involved in bringing it to fruition. How important is the Anglo-Irish Agreement? Because you would read some accounts that would say that it was an important staging post in, in terms of uh, the bringing about of peace on the Ireland, the, you know, the principle of consent. Uh, but then there are others who would downplay it and, and, and give more emphasis to uh, what was negotiated and agreed in the 1990s. So where do you stand in terms of its significance? I think it was very significant because essentially what it did is it conceded to the government in Dublin that it had a role in relation to Northern Ireland, that it could represent the issues of the minority, the people who in a sense had been captured by the border being drawn in 1920, um, you know, to which they had not given their consent. And, uh, you know, from that uh, point of view, it essentially got from the British the biggest concession from them since the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1921 in terms of the role of the uh, Dublin government in uh, Northern Ireland in terms of uh, representing their issues. And it represented their issues, you know, all of the issues that were involved in the social, economic and political exclusion um, that they had suffered in large measure from 1920. Um, and I think from that point of view, it advanced things fairly significantly. You know, gains that would have been included in it was the fact that it set up a forum, the Anglo-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, which meant that the two governments could deal with all issues that were emerging. And that forum, by the way, um, the, the, rather that conference, met almost 70 times between 1985 and the, Anglo- and the Good Friday Agreement of uh, 1998. It also brought about the repeal of the Flags and Emblems Act, strengthened the law on incitement to hatred, it brought about rules of fair employment. And the other thing that it did was that it increased the representation of the nationalist community on all of the public bodies uh, in Northern Ireland, um, it rerouted controversial parades. It brought in police complaints uh, commission. Uh, it also brought in a code of conduct for the RUC and uh, RUC accompaniment for all UDR patrols and so on, and improvements in relation to prisons, trials, and so on. So it didn't obviously bring about peace. It didn't bring about a, a ceasefire, but it did start the dynamics that led to those, uh, including a serious reconsideration by the unionist side. Um, you know, they, they began to... Uh, look at, at um, uh, their particular issues because it did modify what was seen previously as the unionist veto um, and by you know showing that uh, Dublin would have a role and that there wasn't complete control of it around the unionist side and the old days of Stormont were gone. So I think from that point of view it was a major stepping stone and it began, the other thing, it began reflection on the Sinn Féin sort of Republican side as well um, so that it began to, to create a rethink on both the unionist and on the more extreme nationalist side. Uh, in terms of the issues in Northern Ireland, and I think created the dynamics that led to the ceasefires and to the peace process leading up to the Good Friday Agreement. And it really is a remarkable insight into the negotiations from David Goodall's memoir. That, and it's not just uh, it's not just kind of coating over everything. You're getting a sense of you know the the tensions, the infighting, and not just between the different negotiating teams, but also uh, between different sides on the British side. Indeed. I mean, when you're, you're talking about Margaret Thatcher, you're dealing with somebody who was instinctively um, a, a unionist. Um, there was also a trait that was slightly, um, I wouldn't say anti-Irish, but it certainly wouldn't have uh, tilted in favor of Ireland, uh, going back to the fact that she was a teenager during the Second World War. And, you know, she had this sense that, uh, you know, the, the um, Irish were uh, offering it were comfort, uh, you know, towards the, the enemy of Britain at the time. And uh, that, you know, uh, created significant emotional type difficulties for her in terms of going forward. There's one thing that's not in the book that I will mention, 
and it goes back to the first meeting between David Goodall and Michael Lewis. And Goodall was trying to get across to Michael Lewis the scale of the issues and impediments and obstacles that they were facing. And he spoke about the bombs that went off in Hyde Park and Regent's Park in 1982. And the next day there was a cabinet meeting. And you might recall the, the bomb blew up, the horse guards killed, uh, I think it was seven soldiers, seven horses killed as well. And the next day, the same horse guards, or rather another contingent of them, were going by, and they stopped um, near Downing Street to play the last post. And Mrs. Thatcher made everybody stand up in the cabinet room. And at the end of it, when the, the last post finished, uh, according to Goodall, there was uh, an outburst of anti-Irish venom from the members of uh, cabinet, which didn't discriminate between constitutional and unconstitutional Irish nationalists. And he was you know, making the point to Michael Lillis, this is what you and Dublin are up against. This is the scale of the issue. And this goes back to this emotional um, alliance that her, uh, on the part of Margaret Thatcher with unionism, but at the same time a rational acceptance that something had to be done to deal with the issues of exclusion that the nationalist community had suffered from uh, the moment Stormont was set up. Now, as Sir David Goodall passed away in 2016, there's a, a lovely introduction to the book by his widow, Lady Goodall. Uh, when did this memoir become public? Because I know it was embargoed for many years. Was it the, a 30-year embargo? Essentially, basically, um, David Goodall, when he finished it in 1998, he handed it over to Churchill College of Cambridge, and they essentially locked it up on his wishes for 30 years. Now, when he passed away... Um, I, I had, after I retired, I went, back, I went to Trinity and did a Master's in Irish History. And in the course of it, it was contemporary Irish history, I became aware of the existence of the memoir. And in fact, Michael Lillis gave me a loan of it, uh, his personal copy, to read through because it was relevant to the area that I was studying. And um, in uh, 2019, um, Michael and, and the other Irish uh, negotiators, uh, Sean Donlan, uh, Noel Dorr, we're very anxious that it should be published because of its uh, value to historians and uh, also the fact that it captures the legacy of all who were involved in the uh, negotiation. And Michael Lewis went over to London and met uh, Robert Armstrong. He was still alive at the time he passed away in 2020 and put it to him that, um, you know, Lady Goodall, who now in a sense held the copyright uh, because she's you know, the sort of survivor within the family, that perhaps Robert Armstrong might approach her and see would she be willing to have it released from the uh, British uh, archives in, in uh, Cambridge, which she did. And as a result, it became available. And then I was asked by the NUI if I would uh, edit it. And I was given it in, I think, seven different parts. Yeah, and there were like photograph parts and so on. And the archivist, as I say, in, in uh, Cambridge was extremely helpful, Andrew Riley, in terms of, of putting it into a formatable text. And then we started working on getting the additional pieces uh, for it. So it began uh, around 2020, and uh, we just worked on it for about six months in getting the pieces together and approaching uh, Robin Rennick, who had written a book on uh, Thatcher's foreign policy, to get permission to use one of the chapters from his book, and then uh, Charles Pohl as well, in terms of contributing a piece. He had been her private secretary during the whole negotiation. wasn't necessarily enthusiastic as it were about the uh, Anglo-Irish agreement or the, uh, the negotiating process, but at the same time had, uh, you know, good insights and so on into uh, her moves, the issues and so on that uh, she faced in coming to terms with. And uh, when we got that, and Stephen Collins did an excellent piece as well for setting the Irish context, um, essentially it, it all began to come together. But it goes back to that approach by Michael Linus to Robert Armstrong um, about, I don't know, six, nine months before he passed away. Um, in, and he uh, took on the task of securing its release um, with the assistance of uh, Lady Marwena Goodall.
Yeah, well, it's a, I think it's a really significant contribution to scholarship and to our understanding of uh, the events that led to the, the Anglo-Irish Agreement and indeed uh, the peace process uh, beyond it. And we've covered an awful lot of books on talking history, but they're usually secondary sources. Uh, very rarely do we cover a primary source. And I think this is a very significant primary source that's giving you an insight into uh, those remarkable times. Uh, so, Frank... Uh, there's a huge amount here that is, you know, giving us an in- not just for the 1980s, but also in terms of uh, what happened afterwards and even the understanding of issues that are still relevant today. Very much so. I think, you know, that is one of the values of it, that it does uh, sort of give us insight into issues that are very much topical um, in terms of, of the um, divisions that there are in Northern Ireland, which obviously have come a long way since the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but there are still, you know, and we see manifestations of it here and there on underlying uh, issues that are still not resolved, possibly could take generations to do it. Um, you know, there is a, a problem, I think it was um, the historian Porrick O'Malley called it the tyranny of the minorities, the minority in Northern Ireland that did make government there uh, difficult, if not impossible, the minority on the island that has frustrated uh, the, uni- the political unification of the island as well. And, uh, you know, those issues are still there to be fundamentally resolved. And I think it's going to take much more time, certainly in relation to the divisions in Northern Ireland, to do it. And from that point of view, I think there's a very good capture by Goodall of, you know, what the issues are and of the fact that his own motivation was not in any way to bring about a United Ireland, but to do something to address the issues of division. And uh, I think from that point of view, it is still uh, very much highly relevant. Uh, to sort of the current situation and uh, the current tensions that seem to come up with some regularity there. Well, the book is called The Making of the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, a memoir by David Goodall. It's published in paperback by the National University of Ireland and an absolutely superb job has been done editing it by Frank Sheridan, who, of course, is a very distinguished uh, retired Irish diplomat, former Irish ambassador to Brazil, uh, also involved very closely in a lot of this work as well, uh, served in the office of Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald when he was foreign minister, private secretary to Peter Barry and so on. Uh, So no better person to bring this all together. Frank, Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Mary McAuliffe, who is taking part in a very innovative lecture series organised by the Little Museum of Dublin. If you want to find out details, just go to their website. It's littlemuseum.ie. You can join their mailing list. And uh, it's an idea of Trevor White and Sarah Costigan's. And they've asked me to come up with three icons from Irish history to give talks on. They've asked Mary to come up with three figures. And Mary, tell us more. Uh, What's going to happen? Well, uh we will take every second week uh, to deliver our talk on our particular chosen icon or three icons. Um, and it seems you've chosen three men and I've chosen three women. So we have a gender divide. Um, it was very difficult to decide on the three women I wanted to talk about, but I have settled on uh, Anna Parnell, Margaret Skinner, and Nora Connolly O'Brien. And of course, you have that brilliant new book out on Margaret Skinner. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose those three? And, you know, did you have a kind of a, a short list in your head of people that you might be interested in talking about? And uh, how did you hit upon those three? Well, you, I could have chosen so many more women um, 
even just looking at the late 19th and into the 20th century, I mean, that I confine myself to that because they would be the, the period I would be know, know most about. I could have chosen Hannah Shee, Skeffington, Countess Markovich, um, so many more, Maud Gone. I was reading about Charlotte Despard today. You know, there are so many women that you could choose that were icons of that period. One of my favorites would be Helena Maloney. Um, but because I'd written the book on Margaret, I, I chose her. Um, and one of my favorite women who is being rescued, I think, from the, as, as Hobsbawm called it, the condensation of history, uh, is Anna Parnell and a new, uh, publication from UCD Press on her tale of a great sham is just out. Um, and I've always had a great fondness for Nora Connolly O'Brien. I no. think she's a very underrated politician and activist. No, you're absolutely right. And we did have that book on, on, on the show. And I think it, it gives you an entirely new insight into the Land League and the kind of the, some of the radical ideas that others had who were excluded and marginalized. And, uh, Anna Parnell, very significant there. I, I, so I, I perhaps feel I need to defend my own selections <laughs> of, uh, Robert Emmett, Daniel O'Connell. And for the third one, it's a joint one. It's Noel Brown and, and Phyllis Brown. So, I decided to do it as a joint one uh, because uh, Noel always always said that he wouldn't have been able to do his crusading without without Phyllis, and that they were very much a team in how they in how they they campaigned and fought together. So I thought it might be interesting to do it as a as a joint study. That would be very interesting, and oftentimes you do find that with um, political people, not just men, but the women, uh, like Margaret Skinner, spent her life with another activist. Uh, Nora O'Keefe. So part of my talk on Margaret will include uh, her life with Nora and the fact that they were activists together. And of course, Trevor White is, uh, you know, very mischievous and has made this competitive element to it so that the public will be able to vote then at the end. And I think they may be even uh, having a bust or some kind of uh, a statue uh, for whoever is the winning subject. Absolutely, that seems to be it. So, you know, I, I hope to get a woman in that position. And of course, you hope to get some of the, your, your icons. So, um, yes, but it's very friendly competition. Yeah, I, to be honest, I kind of don't feel it can be because Robert Emmett already has a statue pretty much <laughs> right beside the Little Museum. Daniel O'Connell has, has O'Connell Street in the statue. So I think for me, it'll either be one of your three figures or Nolan Phyllis Brown. I think I'm yes. already ruling out two of my <laughs> own, two of my own figures. Uh, so. Uh, I think I think the 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 public will be in for I think an interesting uh, interesting insight into these historical figures and I think an opportunity to maybe look at some of the well known figures but also some of the less well known figures of Irish history and the contribution they've made to to making Ireland. Absolutely, I think you know um, the Noel Brown would be known, but I don't think the detail of what he and Phyllis Brown did is. Uh, as well known as it could be. And so that would be very interesting. Obviously, O'Connell and Robert Emmett. But then again, people just know Robert Emmett for his death, you know, and and there's such an interesting history there. As for the three women with so much of women's history, what they really did and and how impactful they were in terms of their activism is still under uh, written and and appreciated within the context of their uh, historical times. So, um, so I hope you know to persuade 
the public that, you know, the, the fact that Margaret Skinner was a socialist, an activist, a militant nationalist um, for her entire life, including become president of the INTO in the 1950s, makes her a really important political player in, in 20th century Ireland. Okay, well, I think uh, Mary's already convincing me of <laughs> of of the of the significance of of her figures. So uh, we always love having Mary McAuliffe on the show. Absolutely brilliant story in her new book on Margaret Skinner, and she will be talking to the Little Museum of Dublin uh, on Margaret Skinner, Nora Connolly, Anna Parnell. I'll be doing lectures on Emmett O'Connell and Nolan Phyllis Brown, and you'll find out all the details on the Little Museum uh, of Dublin website. Just go uh, to littlemuseum.ie. Join their mailing list. You'll get all of the details of the Icons uh, series. And uh, Mary, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. And I must, one thing I must admit, though, I will be tempted to vote for O'Connell. He is a Kerry man after all. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll be, we'll be almost like a friendly competition where we'll almost be championing each other's uh, figures. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. We'll be back thank with you. more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. At the beginning of the 20th century, Antrim contained the largest Presbyterian population on the island of Ireland. And a new book explores what happened in the county of Antrim during the revolutionary period 1912 to 1923. The book is called Antrim, the Irish Revolution 1912 to 1923. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Brian Feeney. And Brian, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. So let's begin by maybe talking about Antrim. And it seems to be a somewhat different county from all the other counties uh, when we're looking at this revolutionary period. Well, it is. I mean, Antrim was unique. Um, as you said, it is the, uh, had and has the largest Presbyterian population on the island. In fact, it's the largest uh, section of Presbyterians outside Scotland. Um, it, the majority of the population in Antrim 100 years ago uh, was Presbyterian, over 50%. Um, but Antrim was very substantially Protestant, um, 85% Protestant. Um, uh, the Catholics in Antrim were really restricted to a couple of areas, the far northeast of the county and West Belfast, because most of the city of Belfast um, was in Antrim. And Antrim also, uh, unlike the rest of, of uh, the island, or most of the rest of the island, um, didn't have uh, many home rule MPs. I mean, they had eight MPs. Um, one of them, Joe Devlin from West Belfast, was a home rule MP. The rest of the county and the rest of Belfast were old landed gentry and industrial millionaires. And it's interesting when you look at what happens then during this period, you see only really tiny pockets of nationalist sentiment and, you know, small numbers of volunteers times in, in time 916. And it's, it's very interesting how that story develops. Well, it was. I mean, the, 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 the major difference I've mentioned, the, the religious breakdown, but also the fact that in most of the county and particularly in Belfast among the Catholics who would normally be assumed to be nationalists or at least open to uh, even advanced nationalism or Sinn Féin. That wasn't the case. Um, the, the the nationalists in Belfast um, did not uh, subscribe at all to republicanism. 
Um, so a- any kind of uprising or support for the rising was extremely small. And in fact, the, the 1916 rising itself, the Belfast contingent of volunteers, that was the grand sum of 140. And they, the plan was they would go to Pull Island in County Tyrone and then march westwards to join the forces to defend the line of the Shannon, which the, the national plan assumed would be a fallback position from Dublin. Um, never happened. Um, the countermand order came and the 140 caught the train back to Belfast. Um, and that remained the story throughout the whole revolutionary period. Um, there's great hostility between the home rulers in Belfast and Republicans. And it remained, it remained the case. I mean, there, I mean, there was hand-to-hand fighting in West Belfast, uh, in the 1918 election campaign because the majority of nationalists in West Belfast were afraid that Republicans would split the vote and a unionist would be elected for West Belfast. There are some fascinating elements in the book and it was intriguing to read about how unionists in Belfast didn't trust the RIC because they saw it as too Catholic and too disloyal and they insisted on having their own police force. Well, that was the origin of the demand for the uh, the, uh, Ulster Special Constabulary and it wasn't uh, after the rising uh, that this started. It was much earlier, in 1912, um, where large numbers of Catholics were expelled from the shipyard, um, mainly because of concerns that the Unionists had about home rule, which they thought was going to happen after 1912, uh, because of the Act, uh, the Parliament Act in, in, in 1911. But when large numbers of Catholics were expelled, the, the, the shipyard workers, and, and over 90% of them were Protestant, um, they were concerned that the RIC um, would force them to let the expelled Catholics back in again. So they preferred the British Army. Um, and, and that remained the case right through the revolutionary period. They also suspected, um, quite correctly, by 1920-21, that um, police who were, shall, what they called, less than loyal, um, were being transferred to Belfast. Uh, from other parts of the country, uh, particularly the south and west as the IRA campaign developed. So unionists became very concerned about the RIC and the role they would take in in rioting and so on. Um, So by the end of 1919, in fact, the the Belfast City Commissioner, because the RIC uh, in Belfast was a a large unit of its own, about a 1,000 men with a commissioner in charge, uh, by the end of 1919, the commissioner appointed was a man called Brigadier Hackett Payne, who had actually been a senior figure in the UVF in 1913 and 1914, and that was to placate the unionists, who just simply did not dis- uh, did not trust that uh, district inspectors in Belfast uh, would deploy their men against uh, nationalist rioters. Your book also covers the Belfast pogrom between July 1920 and June 1922. And shocking to read about the the, the death toll, the destruction, uh, and really the, the disastrous uh, uh, bigotry that you see on display. Uh, it, it, was, it is appalling. The, the atrocities that took place are absolutely staggering. Uh, between uh, July 1920 and... The, July 1922, there are at least 455 people killed in Belfast. And we're talking about 
civilians, this isn't like police and army and so on. Um, Two-thirds of those were Catholic, although the Catholic population of Belfast was only 25%. Um, there were thousands of people displaced and lost their jobs. Streets of houses were burnt. Uh, and, and it continued sporadically. It wasn't as if there was a sustained campaign against Catholics as such in Belfast. It would calm down and then rise up again. And it very much could be done. You could draw a graph of it as the IRA campaign and the rest of the country uh, became more and more successful. Then the, the Catholics in Belfast were pretty well regarded as hostages for the good behavior of uh, Republicans in the rest of Ireland. I mean, the, the Bishop of Down in Connor, uh, Dr. McCrory, in, in early 1922 said that uh, the attacks on Catholics in Belfast were vicarious punishment for what their uh, co-religionists were doing in the rest of the country. Um, it exp- it, I mean, there were substantial uh, attacks on Catholic areas, and the IRA ended up, by after, even after the truce in 1921, as pretty well a, a, a local defence force in Belfast. It, it wasn't the IRA campaign in Belfast really deteriorated from any idea of taking on crown forces or whatever. It, it ended up as a, as a local defence force by the, by the end of 1921. Very good. Well, Brian, congratulations on the book. It's called Antrim, the Irish Revolution, 1912 to 1923, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. Uh, the author, Brian Feeney. And Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Not all. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for tonight. That brings us to the end of our show. My thanks to my producer, Susan Cahill, Peter Malloy on sound. Some great shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, we'll bring you some of the best new books. And in two weeks' time, the life and work of the brilliant novelist Ernest Hemingway. So join us next week and in the weeks ahead on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history, history. on News Talk.